Welcome to yet another episode of New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr, and this is Lost in Translation, episode two. Part two, episode two, second half, what have you. Um, last time we talked about the trouble of moving from a contemporary issue to a biblical passage or back and forth. How do we deal with the problem of a biblical interpretation uh, all the different interpretations and all that kind of thing. When yeah. it comes to our daily lives, there's a different issue um, when it comes to how, what's the relationship between the biblical text and theological formation, whether it be creeds, doctrines like the Trinity, uh, for that matter, even you know doctrines around who Jesus is, the cross, things like that. And there was an article you sent me that really got me kind of thinking about this. Yeah, this is a... An article in a publication called Living Church, and I think it's an Anglican publication. But in it, uh, N.T. Wright reviews a book by a, a friend, somebody I met actually through Mockingbird at the Mockingbird Conference, uh, Mockingbird Ministries. And it is, it's a friend, Wesley Hill, who wrote a book, Paul and the Trinity, Persons, Relations, and the Pauline Letters. It's Wesley Hill, who is a New Testament scholar who teaches at Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, which is just north of Pittsburgh. So, Bill, what did you, tell me what, what about the article? Well, first of all, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations to his book, N.T. Wright, reviewing it. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty impressive. You know, I think it reminded me back when I was doing my graduate work, I was at Drew. Uh, university and uh, Tom Oden was working there then, and there was a whole uh, group of, of students that were there studying with Tom Oden. Now, Tom Oden was a practical theological professor. Um, interesting story was part of that whole group that uh, ended up becoming you know, religious neoconservatives. Were activists in the '60s, and uh, um, some of those folks were behind the founding of First Things, and, and that. And part of Tom Oden's conversion, um, it was both an intellectual and spiritual conversion from a more liberal version of Christianity, was a kind of a rediscovery of the patristic faith. And, and by patristic, we mean early church, church fathers, yeah, early church, church, the first, like we're saying, several centuries, first six centuries or so. Right. And Tom Oden was a Methodist, and of course, the Wesleys were influenced by uh, by early Christian thinking as well. But there was almost a um, time warp kind of appropriating um, the uh, what he picked from the Vincentian canon, which uh, Vincent of Lorraine said that, you know, that what we hold to be true has been held from antiquity. But all people of all places have, have believed it. Um, and, um, and I can remember being in a PhD seminar on uh, Cappadocian Fathers, which were uh, a group of men, they were friends, and two of them were brothers, who 
for all intents and purposes in the late fourth century are the reason, one of the chief reasons that the Nicene Creed was approved, accepted. They won the theological debate about the Nicene Creed. And so I remember uh, we were talking about something, and I, and, and I can't remember what it was, but I said, wow, that's a really strange idea that one of the Cappadocian fathers had. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this was one of Tom Oden's students, I thought they were going to attack me. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I said, well, they're just men interpreting texts. They were brilliant men, godly um, men. Um, formative people in the, in, in the history of interpretation, but they were just human interpreters, and he's wrong about it. But, I, you know, I might as well have said that Jesus went to reform school. You yeah, know, yeah. It, was, it was that kind of thing. And yeah. what behind, was behind it was this idea of that somehow the interpretation of, of the essentials of the faith, and, then, and this was around the issue of the Trinity, that it came directly from the Bible, mm-hmm. okay, and that merely what the church fathers um, were ratifying was what the Bible had, had already said. There was a guy, Jim, Jim Jordan, who's an older Presbyterian scholar, who uh, said that, I don't know, why wouldn't we call those early figures the church babies? And that they're kind of early on in the development of the church. <laughs> you know, we call them the, the fathers as the source, but because it's one way to look at as our ancestors should. But right. the other thing, if we're looking at as an organ, an organism developing, they're the early stage of development. Yeah, no, I think there was a yeah. I mean, that's certainly one way to look at. It. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect because they, you know, there's you only lay a foundation once. Yeah. Okay. So so these foundational thinkers, I I, I deeply appreciate and and frankly, you know, there's it's kind of like the founding of our country. There was a unique, you know, configuration of brilliant people. Yeah. Who who who. You know, many of them existed within, you know, 50, 60 years of each other. Yeah. Uh, from the Cappadocian Fathers, um, Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, um, really formative figures for the future of both the Eastern and the Western Church. So I have a lot of respect for them, but it, 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 it's, it's one of those things where it gets back to trying to force the text to do something it maybe was not intended to do in the first place. In some levels, the same problem you have with theological formation, you have with life formation when it comes to the text. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I think it was Hans Frey that said that the point of um, the doctrines in the church is the, is the story. Like doctrinal formulations are, are because we're moving along and somehow we've got to figure out how to continue to tell the story. So the priority is the story. Uh, you know, kind of the overarching redemptive story we see in, in Scripture uh, and how we indwell that story. And the doctrines are sort of secondary tools to do that. Whereas, you know, some people may look at it the other way around, that the point the point of, uh, uh, or the point, I'm sorry, the point of the doctrines are the story, he said, rather. The point of, I think I said it the way, but the point of the doctrines are the story. The point of the story aren't the doctrines. So, you know, the doctrines are, are, are to serve the story, um, whereas some people conceive of a sacred text where the point of the story is doctrines to get out, you know, they're, they're to, to almost abstract uh, ideas out or something. And I think that that's when you get in, in, in that sort of formulation, we're, we're getting in the mindset where we see that the story as serving the doctrines, I think we kind of go awry. 
Yeah, you know, and, and even this idea of trying to figure out if there's low Christology or high Christology in the New Testament. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's still taking a 4th or 5th century or a 20th or 19th, 20th or 21st century theological problem and trying to read it back into, in many ways, the um, the raw material by which everything that comes after is being formed. So, you know, my approach to the New Testament is it's the raw material of theology. Uh, same way it is it's the raw material by which we we begin to think about ethics and think about application, but it's still the raw material. Hmm. And I think, to me, one of the one of the most interesting things as a church historian is just the the vitality, if you would, of of, of looking at the story that begins in the biblical narratives and the ideas that are present, particularly in Paul and John, and then to see how the church struggles and grows and takes some steps forwards and step backwards, but you know, struggling with the mystery of Christ, uh, in some levels, not dissimilar of uh, what Paul asked on the road to Damascus, who are you, Lord? Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I still think that's that's still the kind of question that's, that's the, regardless, and I have pretty high Christology based on, you know, the traditional ways of talking about that, a very high Christology, but we still are trying to figure out who he is. Yeah. And that's part of, you know, that's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And And I think that way, not only as a person of faith, but also as a person engaged in theological discourse. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think the other thing that we might expect, if God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and you can't know the Son without the Father, or Father without the Spirit, or the Spirit without the Son, then we, I would think that the witness to revelation that Holy Scripture is would take a form like the one that inspires it, where it, there, you need multiple perspectives to get the whole picture. Right. There's not one gospel. There's 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 four. You know. There's uh, not one uh, apostle or one prophet. There's a, a college of them that you know have different senses of identity and sense calls to mission. And, and the raw material comes in that kind of form. That seems to make that seems to be significant. Yeah, and and it's interesting having studied uh, pretty in depth some of the major controversies in the early church. Uh, the early Trinitarian controversy with the Arian controversy and then the late Arian controversy, and then the Christological controversies that end up in the Council of, you know, kind of solved in the Council of Chalcedon, but not really. Yeah. Um, I, you know, one of the things, there are biblical arguments. You know, one of the, one of the uh, kind of uh, armchair church's history perspectives as well, they were all arguing philosophy. And, and that's kind of, in some levels, there's been various attempts um, originally kind of liberal attempts, but there have been kind of some even neo-evangelical attempts to say, well, that the Greek Greek thought corrupted the Bible and yeah. these, you know, these ideas have been imposed, you know, philosophical notions imposed on the, the simple truth of, of the scriptures. But um, the uh, very nature of Paul's work, the very nature of the Johannine gospel, uh, the writer of Hebrews, I mean, it's obvious that uh, the person and life and death and resurrection of Christ um, made the early writers of the New Testament try to expand and press certain images and languages as far as they could. Yeah. Okay. Whether that be the idea of Lord, whether that be the idea of Logos, uh, 
whether this idea of the relationship between the father and son and appropriating this messianic term as a relational term, uh, the fact that they blessed each other in, 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 in Trinitarian kind of formula. I think to me, what's interesting that these early monotheists who, who, were, who were apocalyptic messianic monotheists uh, were pushed to kind of Trinitarian language as they tried to think about not only who Jesus was, but what was the ongoing life of Jesus that they experienced um, in the life of their, of their church. Yeah, I think it seems to me, too, that a lot of the people... So I think if you, if you look at books like the Da Vinci Code, it kind of plays into a pop cultural mindset that the orthodoxy was set down by a group of oppressive white guys in a back right. room, right. <laughs> cigar smoke filled, and really... Uh, uh, they were unimaginative and, and, and one-sided, and, and the heretics were the free-thinker kind of hippie types. Or it, oftentimes, I think it's the her- it's the Orthodox that are saying both and, right. and the heretics that are saying either or. Right. So the, the it's all the it's almost like the Orthodox would rather preserve two truths in tension with each other than lop one of them off. So it's usually the heretics playing. Part of the Bible off the, off the other part, as opposed to the Orthodox trying to say, no, we kind of have to keep the whole story in in, in creative tension. Right. I think yeah. I think uh, it's true of both people that are insane and they're heretical. There's this remarkable need to be consistent. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and logical, and 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 uh, um, and I think that's that's kind of the beauty of the mess that we get. And both when you try to when you try to pull out systematic theology from the New Testament. Um, when you try to, to to take these genuine struggles that Christians had uh, to try to figure out who is it that we follow, and then in some level um, turn it into whether it's a conspiracy theory, um, um, conspiracy theory, uh, Da Vinci Code kind of thing, or you see the icon of Nicaea where it was this... Uh, wonderful group of holy people. Well, neither of them were true. You know, matter of fact, uh, the second or Nicene Constantinople, where the Nicene Creed was, uh, was ratified, uh, Gregory Nazianzus started, who began chairing it, quit. Didn't St. Nicholas too, who Santa Claus was based on, punch an Aryan at, at, at one of the conferences? Now, I, I don't remember that, but I know there was, there was a... He, yeah, I'm sure. I, I, yeah, he did. I'm sure. Actually, I'm sure that. I, I read that, actually. I think right. Last, and, yeah, he punched him one in the face. And Gregory Nazianzus runs this, wrote this wonderfully beautiful satiric poem about what exactly happened at the <laughs> Holy Council of, of, of Nicaea Constantinople. But that makes sense to me. In other words, I, to me... The Bible is a messy book. Church history is a messy process because humanity is messy. And I've often, you know, I've used this analogy before. When Jesus gave the disciples the keys of the kingdom, it was like he threw the keys of a Ferrari into the hands of a 16-year-old <laughs> ADD That's teenage great. boy driver. And That's great. And the reality of it is that immediately, you know, the church and the kid crashes the car into into the first tree they come into. Yeah. And yet, it seems to me God's quite, um, feels the freedom to allow us to continue down this journey. And and so for me, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating to, you know, to 
to see that there can be a new book about Paul that's interesting. That, yeah, that, yeah. That says a lot. And, yeah. I, and I've read a lot of really interesting books on Paul. And so I think that speaks a lot of, uh, uh, you know, um, blessings to the author. But I think it speaks volumes about who he's writing about. Yeah. And, and yet to try to impose third century or fourth century or fifth century or 21st century theological notions onto the Apostle Paul, who, you know, didn't even have time to use grammar frequently, uh, you know, uh, or punctuation, you know, I think um, may be an exercise that, that uh, is, is less than, and less than legitimate. I, I think to say that Paul is the first really profound reflector of who Jesus Christ is and his thinking is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is foundational for everything that comes after him. To me, that's an awful lot to say and, 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 and infinitely important. Yeah, the other thing I think, in the way that we were talking earlier about like terms for Christology and things like that, I think if I was going to say, let me tell you a story, or it, at least this might have worked a, you know, a generation ago or something like that. So let me tell you a story about someone who can run faster than a locomotive and leap tall buildings in a single bound and then say, Bill Bohr. Well, what I'm doing then is using a kind of Superman trope to kind of, right. I'm trying to connect you to this um, character. And I think that it's almost like in, in in the Gospels, very often this is how it works. Like uh, the one who can uh, leap, tall buildings or run it or the one who can forgive sins or the one who makes the wave sound. This is the Holy One of Israel. But so you're going to fill in the blank with the Holy One of Israel. No, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And so we get this, this now. So one hand, how do you, how do you, how do you transmute that? Like I think about now, like uh, I remember my, my, uh, a friend of mine who's a huge Superman fan, uh, his, you know, buying Superman stuff for his kid, realizing his kid has never seen a phone booth. Right. <laughs> so, such a major part of the story where Superman jumps into the phone booth, comes, Clark Kent jumps in and comes out of Superman. And that's something. So, now we don't have phone booths anymore. Or even pay. I, I don't know where the closest pay phone is to my house. So in, in, a, in a world of, of iPhones, where does Superman change? <laughs> you know, and that's some of the thing is, 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 is uh, I mean, it's always trying to translate, right, the relationship of the Holy One of Israel to this one in whom his presence was felt and his spirit, which is the continued presence of the Holy One of Israel revealed in and as Jesus. And then how do you do that, you know, in places that don't have phone booths or... Right. You know, and I think, you know, when it comes to the doctrine of Trinity, I'm, you could say that from, I don't know, uh, you pick a century, but that's, let's say, from the 18th century forward, um, <clears throat> there's been this attempt to see the Trinity as this burdensome way of trying to talk about God. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, you know, it's become really, with a different kind of worldview, okay? Yeah. Uh, with, in, in a postmodern moment, there's all kinds of, you know, uh, non-traditional theologians embracing the Trinity Absolutely. as a way to talk about not only God but reality. There's this idea of suddenly they've recaptured, they've lost the prejudice of modernity. Yeah, yeah. If you would have sat in the mid-20th century and tried to predict that development, nobody, everyone would have thought you were crazy. But what that shows is that by, by kind of a, allowing 
there to be uh, seeing things with new eyes. We can actually see some really great insights. Um, but I think that's, 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 um, that's part of the ongoing dynamic of interacting with the raw material of the scriptures, as well as you know, being open to learn from our um, mothers and fathers of faith that have come before us and, uh, and to be able to say, well, this idea of, of God as this dynamic relationship um, is really a powerful way to think about um, what we hope for humanity and what we hope for the church as well. So to me, that, you know, that I find it infinitely comforting uh, and faith-encouraging to see that um, uh, you know, the phoenix of Christian theology consistently arising out of the ashes of those who would be trying to make it relevant enough that it can last this particular time. Yeah, I mean, or maybe scriptures like whiskey, the longer it ages, the more flavorful it can get. I sit two stories above the street. It's awful quiet, here since love fell asleep. There's life down below me, though. The kids are walking home from school. Some long ago, and we were taught that for whatever kind of puzzle you got, you just stick the right formula the solution for it. Skipping my class and running from school And I bought you that ring cause I never was cool What makes me think I could start being slated The hardest to learn was the least complicated Down below me, though. Now the 
kids are walking home from school I remember the time when I came so close with you Sent me skipping my class and running from school And I bought you that ring cause I never was cool What makes me think I could start please lady The hardest to learn was the least complicated so What makes me Complicated